The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. There's a movie out there that I don't recommend watching unless you have clear play or some other kind of filter. But the name of the movie is Talladega Nights. The main character is played by Will Ferrell, and he's a race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And Ricky Bobby uh, is driven for success. And there's reasons for that. One is his father uh, pushed him in that direction and then abandoned the family, and that's a whole other set of issues. But, but this is what his father told him, and this was his mantra. This was, his, this was what he uh, lived his life by. If you're not first, you're last. You, you, I've heard that many times. It's, I see it on, on memes and I see it on things out on the Internet. You know, if you're not first, you're last. Okay? That was Ricky Bobby's theme. This morning, I want to preach to you on a more biblical theme. The title of my message this morning is, If You're Not Last, You're Lost. If you're not last, you're lost. Now, understand me, and I think you do, when I say lost, I don't necessarily mean eternally lost. That's not what the purpose of this message is this morning. But contrary to Ricky Bobby's theme, which is also the world's theme, by the way, since the dawn of time, the total opposite theme applies in the kingdom of God. If you're not last, in the kingdom of God, then you've lost your way, beloved. You are lost on the pathways of this life. If you're not putting yourself down and being last instead of striving to lift yourself up and be first. Here in the passage that we're going to begin reading in in verse 35, Jesus once again has to reteach this same old lesson. It's not the first time he's talked to us about this. And it won't be the last, but it's the, it's the same old lesson that he has to reteach to his disciples all the time. If you're not last, you're lost. You've lost your way on this path of life. But let me just say this. Aren't you glad he reteaches? Aren't you glad he didn't say, okay, here it is. You either get it now or you're, you're, I'm done with you forever. He continues to teach us this lesson. I'll say this before we go any further. He's taught me this, this lesson once again, even this very week. If you're not last, you're lost. You've lost your way as a child of God in this life. Not lost eternally. You're going to heaven if you're a child of God, but you've lost your way in this life. Listen as we read this account. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's really a funny story, to this, isn't it? A funny statement in a sense. They just don't realize how, how laughable that is, but we'll come to that in a minute. They said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. 
and with the baptism that I am baptized with shall you be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, if you're not last, you're lost on the pathways of the kingdom of God here. Let's look at this for a few minutes that we have this morning. First of all, notice their selfish request. Notice their selfish request. And I want you to notice that there's a lot of corrupting influences that have led them to this point. It says in verse 32, or verse 35 rather, these two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they came to him and, and they said, we want you to do something for us. What we want you to do for us is we want you to elevate us to the right hand and the left hand of, of your throne. When you're, we want to sit... In heaven, they say in your glory, uh, I don't know if they really knew what they were talking about. I don't think they did. But they said, wherever it is in your glory, we want to sit on the right hand and the left hand. Now, <laughs> verse 35 here tells us that it was James and John. We don't have to turn back there, but this account is also covered in Matthew chapter 20. And, and let me just say, <clears throat> y'all going to laugh at this, but... I, I get where this is coming from because I got a mama a lot like James and John. Because if you're going to go back and look at chapter 20 of Matthew, you're going to see that it wasn't them that initiated this. It was their mama. Their mama came to Jesus and said, I got something. And she was worshiping him. She didn't, she didn't come to him uh, uh, in, in, you know, in pride and arrogance from the sense of, Marching up to him like this. Now, there was a lot of pride and arrogance involved here, but, but it was subtle. And that, that's one of the things we all have to guard against. But their mama came to him and said, I just want you to make them the, the, the top dogs in the kingdom. You know, now I, that's all I'll say about mama, because this is going to go out on the airwaves. And I don't I still want to be able to go eat with her on Christmas. But uh, <laughs> but but you know her. I know her. My brother would be sitting here amening it if I if I said it and she would be stomping her foot and getting up and walking out if she was here probably but but we've all got parents okay not just my mama but but it just happens that it's me and Tim you know and and I could see her doing this very thing and and as parents we get that don't we we want our children we want our children to be successful we want our children to 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 rise up in this in this world but but notice I I, I just I want to say this as kindly and gently as I can, but there can be a corrupting influence from your family. And, and it's not always just, I, my mom, my mother's not wicked, you know, she's not a wicked woman, you know, I could see her doing this though. And, 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 and I could see myself falling into this trap or, or maybe you can see that in yourself or maybe you've got someone in your family. But regardless of whether it's somebody improperly promoting you, maybe it's just somebody pulling you away from the kingdom of God. 
Maybe it's somebody that's teaching you something in the kingdom of God that's not correct. There can be a corrupting influence from our worldly ties. Mothers particularly have great influence on their children. She was seeking this apparently out of a sincere heart. We're told in Matthew chapter 20, she was worshiping him. She came to him worshiping him and was, and was very, uh, very uh, uh, gracious in a sense about it, gentle about it. But I want you to listen to what Jesus says. Just, just sometimes we need to be reminded about, about how much family can interfere with our service in the kingdom of God. Now, now, now don't go away from here saying, Brother Chris said that you need to just neglect your family and, and you know, move into the church house and forget about them. That's not what I'm saying. You, you have duties to your parents. You have duties to your siblings, your children, whatever family it is. You have some duties you need to fulfill. But those connections, those ties to family must not interfere with your uh, service in the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus put it over in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus is not talking here about eternal life. You go back to the context and you'll understand that what he's dealing with here is our walk in this life. But here's what he's saying. He's also not saying you have to declare war on your parents or on your children in order to be a member of the church. You know, that's what some people, I've seen it, unfortunately. Brother Buddy knows what I'm talking about. I've seen places where, where the wrong kind of teaching, legalistic type teaching was taught to where that if, uh, if you've got church members that are, say, excluded from the church, you can't even go see them anymore. Or you got church members, or you got people that are siblings that are, are, are family members that are not members of the church. You can't have anything to do with them. That's not what we teach here. Listen, you need to engage in your family. You need, your family that is not a member of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, you need to engage with them to the extent that you can in order to hopefully win them someday. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh thee uh, of the hope that lieth within you. How are you going to give an answer if you're not engaging, you see? But, but what he's saying is this, don't let even family come between you and the church. I know many situations where you have a, a husband and a wife, where, where let's say, let's just use this example, and because it's used in, in, in the book of 2 Peter, or 1 Peter, I believe it is. But, uh, but, but let's just say you've got a believing wife, a, a wife who's a member of the church, and you've got a husband who is not, and who is not interested in the things of the church. Uh, if you're that wife, don't let that husband keep you from the kingdom of God. Now, now certainly wives are to be submissive to their husband. Children are to obey their parents. But you know what? There's an exception to that. When you're commanded to do something contrary to the word of God, don't submit and don't comply. As a child, especially, for example, if you've got parents that don't want you going to church, go anyway. You may not be old enough to go right now. You may not be able to go on your own. But when you get old enough, go anyway. Don't let anyone in your family dissuade you or lead you astray in the kingdom of God. You know, Paul said in, uh, I think it's over in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, says this. <laughs> I like this because 
This is an advice, some advice my brother gave me not long after I was called into the ministry. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says, But it, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, I went back home and asked my wife or my family, do you think that's all right? Is that what it says? I went and got a committee of my friends and family and said, hey, I think the Lord's leading me. What do you think? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have counselors, but they should be godly scriptural counselors. Notice what Paul said. When this happened to me, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. You know what he's saying there? When the Lord called me into the ministry, I didn't let my family, I didn't let my friends, I didn't let my fellow apostles even dissuade me from following the work that the Lord had called me to do. As I said, that doesn't mean we don't seek godly counsel. I doubt there's anything that I would do in a major way in my life that I wouldn't go to Brother Buddy or Brother Tim or some of you and just sit down and say, hey, this is what I think the Lord's leading me to do, but what do you think? It's not, this is not a call to go off rogue like a, you know, some, kind of a, uh, some kind of maverick out there, but it is telling us that you don't let anybody stop you from doing what God has called you to do, and you don't let anybody lead you down the wrong way, not even your mama. <laughs> Not even your mama. But now look, the corrupting influences here weren't just the mama and family. There was also some pride involved. You, you notice if you read chapter 20 of Matthew and also here, here they, you know, it kind of leaves their mama out. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. That's just, he's just focused on the fact that, guess what? James and John wanted this too. They weren't just led by their mother and, oh, mama, don't do this. You know, they were, they, were all, they were all bought in. They were excited about it, you know. That's the way me and Tim would be. We'd say, mama, shut up. Come on, you know. But anyway, that's, anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, mama, if you ever hear this. But seriously, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Here, here we have James and John all bought in. They wanted this. And you know what the book of Proverbs says about pride? Chapter 11 and verse 2. When pride cometh, what comes? Then cometh shame. Then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. They are about to experience some shame here. The disciples are going to be mad at them. Their friends, when they hear about this, they're going to be, I mean, that, that's kind of, I, I get that too. I, that would be so embarrassing to me. What if you go up to Jesus and say, Lord, I've got something here I want you to do. And, and maybe they were convinced that he was going to do it. Because, you know, this is James and John, you know, the, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. They're, they were some of the first ones that were called. So surely, you know, who else would be uh, appropriate for these positions? And, and the Lord, I, I do believe, and we're going to see that he gently, he gently rebuked them. He didn't, he didn't just slap them upside the head. He kind of gently rebuked them. But still, how embarrassing would that be? <laughs> How embarrassing. Have you ever been in a position, I have, where, where I thought something was uh, about to happen, about to work out in my favor, and it was clear it wasn't even close? That's an embarrassing place to be. That's an embarrassing. Were, they're about to experience shame. And by the way, we're going to see, and I'm just going to go ahead and mention it here. In verse 41, it says, When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased 
with James and John. We're told in another passage they were angry with them. But uh, could it not? I'm not trying to excuse them because I don't believe they're excusable. Could it be that they were angry simply because they hadn't thought about it first? <laughs> James and John beat them to the punch. And they got upset about it. And then this self-righteous anger of, oh, well, you know, I can't believe y'all did this. That kind of thing. But notice, notice here, they're, I'm not saying that James and John are wicked people. They're men just like us. We all have a pride problem. Hey, let me tell you something. Primitive Baptist preachers sometimes have a pride problem. And, and think, about, think about James and John. Again, not to excuse them. Where had they just come from? In chapter 9, they had just come from the, from the place high on the mountain where just James and John and Peter had seen Jesus in his glorified state. I mean, that would lead me to think, you know, the Lord must, must really like me better than the others. He called me to come up the mountain. And, and can you imagine how excited they would have been, how amazed they would have been? No doubt they wanted some of that. <laughs> they saw that glorification and they saw, Isaiah, they saw Isaiah, I mean, Elisha, Elijah and Moses there with him in a glorified position. And they're thinking, man, I want that kind of preeminence and power myself. Who doesn't? And, and that's the way the world was teaching them. That's the way the world teaches us today. If you don't promote yourself, who will? You know, that's the, you know if, if, if you're not going to stand up for yourself, then nobody else will. So why, why not go out and stand up for yourself and promote yourself and get to a point of preeminence? But don't forget this, beloved, because they did. Jesus had come down that mountain from that glorified state, but he didn't come down that mountain to ascend his throne. Jesus is headed for a cross. Jesus is headed for a cross. And they kept missing that point. You know how, you've, we've read it. I'm not going to rehash that. He's telling them all the time, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. He, he said, yeah, I'm going to rise on the third day. They didn't, they didn't even get that far. They didn't understand. He said, Lord, quit talking about this. Quit saying this kind of stuff. You're the, you're the son of man. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, according to Peter. Peter's already made that declaration. The cross is not in his view. And it wasn't in the view of these two sons of Zebedee. They wanted the crown. <laughs> but just like the rest of us, they didn't want the cross. That's what... We want, isn't it? We want the crown. We don't want to have to go by way of the cross. <clears throat> Clearly, they didn't grasp this. Think about this. Think about this. He just told them in verses 32 through 34 about the cross. And they still were just, they were all they cared about was promotion and their position and power. And they were still trying to promote themselves. But Remember our theme this morning? If you're not last, you're lost. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. What if, what, if, what if God gets more glory 
out of you coming in last than you coming in first in whatever race you're in, whether it's just the race of life in general. What if, what if God gets more glory? What is our focus, beloved? What is it that we should be thinking about? You know, I want to find my pleasure and my comfort, and I want my position. No. You know, what our, you know what our job is in this life? You know what our goal ought to be? What our purpose for being here is? It is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. What if, what if the greatest glory of all comes from you serving instead of you self-serving? You see, our only concern should always be the glory of God. Now look, look at... Uh, Look at the Savior's response here. Look at what he says. He asks them, you know, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> they say, we want to sit on one hand or the other. And then they, <laughs> said, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand in your glory. And you know what he told them? He basically said, guys, you have no idea what you're asking for. That's what he said, isn't it? You know not what you ask. I could just see the Lord shaking his head. And, you know, I don't know if he grinned or not. I don't know that this is something he would grin about. He'd, he'd just say, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. He said, can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The cup here symbolizes, I believe, the wrath of God. That's almost always what the cup is talking about. Baptism symbolizes immersion. He's not literally going to be baptized like we're baptized. In fact, our baptism is a symbol of the baptism he was baptized with, which was being uh, crucified and buried and then raised again. He's about to be immersed, though, in an experience that the disciples cannot even fathom. They can't even grasp it when he tells them what's happening here. Jesus is about to experience the whole wrath of God poured out upon him because of sin. Back over in Psalm, the 75th uh, division. In Psalm 75, in verse 8, listen to this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Did you know that but for Jesus going to the cross, you and I would be categorized in the same category as these wicked of the earth, and we would be required to wring out, not just to drink most of it, to wring out every last drop out of those grapes of wrath and drink them to their dregs. The wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Why is it that you and I don't have to do this? Because Jesus Christ became as the wicked of the earth. He took on all of your sin and all of my sin and the sins of every single one of his elect children. And he drank that cup of God's wrath to the dregs. That's the baptism he was to be uh, baptized with. That's the cup that he was to drink. And that's why these disciples didn't know what they were talking about. They couldn't do that. 
Every single one of the disciples should have been crucified with Jesus. They should have stood with him. They should have stayed with him and they should have died. But not one drop of their blood would have had any efficacy whatsoever to put away one of the most minor sins that they'd ever committed. Not one. (laughs) Only one, just one, right? Only one, just one. Just one, just one. He says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. You remember, you remember Isaiah 53? Man, we don't ever need to forget this, this chapter. It's called the Gospel of the Old Testament sometimes. The Gospel according to Isaiah. In the seventh, chapter, seventh verse of Isaiah 53, verse 4, let's go to verse, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Skip down to verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You know why it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Not because there was any dissatisfaction among the Godhead, but because at the time he bruised him, he had become sin for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He, he had, this God hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. James and John, you don't know what you're asking. I've got to go by way of the cross. I've got to bear your sins along with the sins of every single one of the multitudes that can't be numbered of the elect of God. There's a baptism, there's an immersion, there's an experience I'm about to be immersed in that you can't, you can't do this. He, he had re- already told them of his ultimate destination, the cross. He said that back in, chapter, back in verse 33 of chapter 10 of Mark. He said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered to the priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. See, the main point of eternal salvation is this, that God is good and we are not. And because God is good and we are not, someone had to bear our sins for us. The holiness of God and the depravity of man must always be the starting point of a proper understanding of this eternal salvation. He said, you guys don't get it. You don't know what you're asking for. And then he said, to a certain degree, you're going you're to share my baptism. Notice, notice what he said. as he. They, they said in verse 39, I can, now I, I can picture this in my mind. They said unto him, he said, can you, can you bear what I'm about to bear? They said, we can. Yeah, we can. You ever spoken without knowing what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, I can do this, no problem. You know. 
They said unto him, We can, and, and I can just see Jesus kind of shaking his head. And my, I, can't, I can imagine a tear coming to his eye here and saying, You know what? You are going to experience a little bit of what I experienced. You know, you know that according to history, every single one of the apostles, including Paul, died a martyr's death. They were, they were either crucified or burned in oil, burned at the stake, beheaded. Every single one of them except John, except John, the revelator, John the apostle, died a martyr's death. And John experienced the, the being exiled to the Isle of Patmos. That's where he was when he wrote the book of Revelation. In his later years, no tell. John was probably in his 80s or 90s when this happened. You know, in, our, in, in, in my 80s and 90s, think about Brother Mackey. Brother Mackey's 84, 85, Aunt Lorraine's 85. Think about us saying to one of them, okay, we're going to take you and we're going to put you on a deserted island. There'll be food there, but you've got to fend for yourself. There'll be shelter there, but you've got to do for yourself. We're going to put you away over there, and you're not going to get to come back to church. It's killing them right now not to be able to come to church. But can you imagine all of the, 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 the difficulties that even this apostle who ultimately, we're told, died a natural death experienced? I, I, I suspect that if you talk to John on his deathbed, he would say, I wish I had died years ago. I would submit to martyrdom to be able to see my Lord again. He said, <laughs> he said you're going to drink of this cup and with this baptism and be baptized with this baptism. He said, you're going to do that. And by the way, let me just say this. This was not a punishment for them. This was not the Lord saying, okay, you know, I'm tempted. I, I tend to be this way. Okay, big boy, you asked for it, you got it. <laughs> That's not what the Lord's doing here. I, I see a tear in his eyes. I see, a, I see a look on his face of love and compassion and concern. He tells them in one place in uh, the 16th chapter of John in the 33rd verse, he said, in this world you shall have tribulations. He didn't say, I'm going to bring them on you. He said, you shall have them. But he said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what he tells them. So it shouldn't be a surprise that these ten apostles died a martyr's death. It shouldn't be a surprise that they were baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. In fact, Peter, we're told, according to legend, according to history, uh, I don't know for sure if it's true or not, but according to legend and history, Peter was crucified uh, like Jesus. But when the time came for the crucifixion, he said, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord turned me upside down. He was crucified on an upside down cross because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified crucified like the Lord. Now, now let me say something to you this morning that I don't mean to be something to scare you about. I don't know what's coming in this world. And I'm not saying this because of our recent election. I'm not saying it because of the uncertainty of this world. I'm just telling you based on what I read in the Bible. Don't be surprised if some of us are called upon someday, to die a martyr's death. Now, I know, let me say this, there's, there's some freedoms we need to be prepared to defend in this nation. There's some things that there may come a time when we need to stand. But let me, let me just say this. I often hear this rhetoric out there about, you know, there's going to be a war. And I, I'm not surprised if there will be sometime. There's going to be... There's gonna be uh, civil unrest, but let me tell you what we're not. We're not 
protesters. We are professors of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our place to go out there like some of these folks that claim to be um, standing for right and all these things and burning down buildings and tearing up things. Let me just say to you, beloved, the time may come when we are called upon to lay down our lives like Christians, like these apostles did. I hope it doesn't come in my lifetime or even the lifetime of my children or grandchildren, but it may happen. There are people in the world today who are dying because of their faith. We just got it so good over here, Brother Buddy, we don't, we don't realize that and we take it for granted. Then Jesus told them that positions in the kingdom of God are not given out based on worldly ambition. Look at verse 40 and 41. Verse 40 said, To sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. You don't know what you're asking. There's something I've got to do that you can't do. And by the way, the Lord, you know, they're thinking in the terms of an earthly kingdom anyway. They're thinking in terms of a political kingdom here. Let me rule and reign with you when you come back as a glorified state. And you know, people are teaching that today. People are teaching today that one day the Lord's coming back to rule and reign on this earth and there are going to be positions of authority in that kingdom. Let me tell you what the Lord is really doing. He's ruling and reigning now. He's ruling and reigning in a spiritual kingdom, and we're part of that spiritual kingdom. And by the way, the way to advance and become on his right hand or his left hand in the spiritual kingdom is to come in last. Because <laughs> if you're not last, you're lost. <laughs> you lost your way. You're on the wrong path in the kingdom of God. See, even the other disciples missed this point. They were mad at, these, uh, at, the, at James and John for even asking, Probably because they didn't ask first and they, they wanted to, but also said, well, I can't believe these guys. Did. So they're putting them down. They're saying we're better than them because we didn't ask the Lord like this. So maybe we can sit on your right hand and left. I'm putting words in their mouth. I know, but I'm saying to you, they did not get it. And this is why we don't jockey for position. We don't try to make a name for ourselves. God knows where his ministers need to be. Back over in that same psalm, the 75th psalm. Uh, look back with me up a couple of verses to verse, uh, uh, verse 5. It says, lift, up not, lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. Get pride and arrogance out of your life. Now listen to verse 6. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Now that certainly applies in an overruling sense in the world. You know, God out there often overrules the schemes of men to elevate someone to a position of authority. But that absolutely applies in the kingdom of God. And here God ought not to be having to overrule things. In our kingdom, in our church, God ought not to have to be coming in here and say, well, Brother Chris and Brother Buddy are jockeying for position to be pastor of this church. I'm going to fix it because they're messing it up. <laughs> you know what? I'll, let me tell you, I don't want to get too off base here. Brother Buddy and I have talked about this so many times. Brother Buddy has so much more experience than I do in the kingdom of God, in preaching, in pastoring. He has so much more of a track record, if you will. He's got so much more behind him. He'd have every right to come in here and say, Brother Chris, step aside. I know, I know more about this than, than you do. And you know what? There's a lot of times he does know more about some things than I do. 
And instead of coming in here and saying, Brother Chris, step aside, he'll gently lead me. He'll call me. We'll sit down and visit. We'll talk. We'll pray together. You know, there's no jockeying for positions here. We, we're so blessed to have that, not just with me and Buddy, but with John Morgan and with, with Tim and uh, Neil and Luke and McNeil and all those that are in this area. Now, there's some places that's not the case. But here in our area, we are so blessed. We talk about it all the time. There's no preacher jealousy. <laughs> that's not true. I am jealous. I'm very jealous of Brother Buddy, but uh, I'm going to keep him preaching anyway because maybe one day I can learn to be like him. But anyway, I say that to say, praise God, that's not the way it is here. And it should not be the way that it is. God may have to overrule the kingdoms of this world and their schemes, but there ought not be things he has to overrule in our kingdom. Instead, we trust that this is exactly true, that promotion doesn't come from the east or the west or the south, but God is a judge. When it comes to calling pastors, when it comes to serve the service in the church, God is a judge. God takes care of things. He said that's the way it's supposed to be. And then he gives them the spiritual pattern as we bring this to a close. Look at verses 42 through 45. He says in verse 42, he, he, he turns them away from the worldly paradigm for success. A paradigm just simply means a pattern. It's an example that serves as a model. And he says here in this, in this situation, he says, this is the world's way of thinking, that they which are accounted to rule exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. In other words, it's a pyramid, like I've been telling you. At the, if you reach the pinnacle of the pyramid, that means all these folks below you are serving you, and that means you're great. You're the greatest. You come in first. <laughs> What's Ricky Bobby say? If you're not first, you're last, right? Jesus says, Let's turn that pyramid over. Let's turn it on its head. Because you know the world is upside down already. And Jesus says, It shall not be so, or so shall it not be among you. You know, that's something we ought to take to heart here at this church. I, be I believe you do. I, I do. I, I, I want to echo something Brother Buddy says very often. We're not, I'm not here preaching to you because there's a problem about this. I am so thankful that I am blessed to be your pastor when everybody out here loves one another and puts the other ahead of themselves. But you know how easy it would be? Brother James and I were talking before service about something Elder Armin Rich told me one time. I heard him say it from the stand more than once, actually. He said, that old human nature is like a spring. He said, you take your foot and you put it on that spring, you hold it down. But the minute you take your foot off, it pops right back up where it was. Now, we got our foot on the spring here in this church, and I'm thankful for that. But don't you take your foot off of it because it'll pop right back up where it was, and we'll have troubles. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, so shall it not be among you. Remember that phrase, so shall it not be among you. It's not like the, the theme of the world, if you're not first, you're last. The actual theme of the kingdom of God is that if you're not last, you're lost. You've lost your way in the kingdom of God. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. You know what the word minister means? It's the word we get deacon from. You know, everybody wants to talk about deacons. Oh, they run the church. No, they don't. They serve the church. Deacons are servants of the church. 
They are, that's, they're, they're the lowliest members in, in one sense. They're the ones that, that, are, that are taking care of the needs of those in the church. We, I've seen places where deacons became the ruling faction of the church. Let me tell you, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But beloved, I'll tell you this, a true deacon, one, he doesn't have to be ordained. He doesn't have to be called upon because they're just going to serve because they're the lowliest of all. You know what? They've, you know, you ever heard of this phrase, clawing your way to the top? <laughs> Those old deacons have clawed their way to the bottom. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be doing. He said, and, and, and the word servant of all literally means slave. I don't know about you, but my nature grates against that, my human nature. Say, I don't want to be a slave. That's why God gave us a spiritual nature. We ought to be slaves. Slaves. To those around us, not slaves to the world, not slaves to, you know, slaving away at our job. No, slaves to one another, you see. And it's not, that's the kingdom paradigm. And it's not the first time he's taught that. Back in Mark, the ninth chapter and the eighth chapter, he taught it. And, he, and he'll teach it to him again in the 13th chapter of John, which is, is before this, it's after this. And he says this, he says, a new commandment I give you. That ye love one another. Sounds good. I, I love those that I like, you know. I like folks that are nice to me and I love them. He says, hey, wait a minute. As I have loved you, so love you one another. How, how did he love? Had, do you love Jesus every single minute of every single day? Have you, you know, you say, well, I'll, yeah, I love him. Well, you know, my daddy used to say, don't tell me you love me. Show me. So let me ask it this way. Do you show Jesus you love him every single second of every single minute of every single day? If you do, you're better than me. There's many, many, many times every single day where I do not serve him. And therefore, I do not love him because love is not a feeling. It's an action. And I'm not loving him like I should. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so love you one another. And that means that he loved us never once wavering, never once faltering in his way up to, on the way up to Calvary. He loved us every single step. He didn't love the cross, but he loved the joy that was to come and he despised the shame of the cross, but he endured it for our sake. And even when we were enemies, Jesus died for us. I, don't, I, I hope I would die for you. You are my friends. I hope I'm man enough that if the time came that I had to lay my life down for one of y'all that I would and I would do it willingly. But, you know, I've got enemies out there. I don't feel the same way by them. I don't feel that I want to lay my life down for my enemies. But Jesus did just that. He laid his life down for his enemies. Guess who that was? It was you, beloved. It was you. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. He died for you and I when we were enemies of His. And He turned their minds to the example He had said in verse 45. And we're probably going to come back to that tonight or some other time. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Even in the, even the Son of Man. 
you're, you're like, wait a minute, the Son of Man did this? He didn't have to. No, he didn't. We'll talk about that later. But even he did this. I want to, I want to close out with a story I read in, in doing preparation for this sermon. I ran, ran across this, this story about a rice farmer in Asia whose, <laughs> whose farm was high up on the hillside. And if you know about rice farms, they're like terraced farms and they have water in them and all. And, and they go, they look like terraces all the way around these mountains in Asia and China or Japan, places like that. Well, his, his rice farm was up on top of the mountain. And that's where his barns were full of his crops. That's where his home and everything was. And he had a perfect view of the sea out there. And and one day he was he had finished with his harvest and his barns were full and his house was secure and all that. And he looks down toward the sea, and down there at the sea he sees the he sees the water receding, and, and he knows what that means that a tsunami is coming, a tidal wave is coming, and he knows that most, if not all, of those farmers down on the mountain, down the shore, down toward the shore there, are going to die unless he can unless he can get the word to them that, they, that the tsunami is coming. And, and, he can't, and, and he can't yell loud enough, and he can't, uh, he can't get the word out uh, strong enough. So, so what, is, what is he to do? Well, here's what he did. He went to his barn, and he set it on fire. He went to his house, and he set it on fire. And when they saw all his friends down there, saw the fire they came running up the hill running up the mountain to help him put out the fire and in doing so he saved the whole village doing that i don't have any illusions that that's a true story it may be but i don't i don't know if it is or not but i'll tell you this that man was willing to give all on behalf of his brothers and sisters he burned his whole goods up in this world to save those that were down below and that otherwise had no hope. That's, that's the kind of love, that's the kind of sacrifice the kingdom of God requires, beloved. Are we willing to put ourselves down to get rid of everything we have for the betterment of others? If we aren't, we've lost our way. If we're not last, we're lost in the kingdom of God. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.